Hello and welcome to Next on WQL and I'm your host Marcus Atkinson. If you're on social media, follow us on Twitter at 814next. Like our page on Facebook. Feel free to comment on both platforms. Lend your voice to the dialogue. For those listening on radio, thank you for tuning in. Gentrification Part 2. Part one was actually the most watched episode that we've produced under this new format, and it didn't surprise me at all. As we pointed out before, this is a hot-button topic across the country. It is spurring many community conversations, um, a lot of town hall meetings and things along those lines. If you didn't get an opportunity to watch or listen to the last show, I encourage you to go to wqln.org. If you go to the next page, they have all of the episodes chronicled on SoundCloud. You can go back and you can listen to it. If you're on social media, you can simply scroll scroll down the page and click on the last episode of Gentrification Part 1. If you remember, we had a poll on social media, and it was only 71 votes. I told you before, this is a very difficult topic to get people to really declare their feelings about. But when you looked at that, it broke down to uh, the question was, with all of the development going on in Erie, are you concerned about gentrification, yes or no. And I also gave them the option of uh, posting commentary if they so choose. We'll read some of those comments towards the end of the show and analyze it with our guests. 65% of the people that went on that poll said that yes, they were concerned about gentrification in uh, Erie's development. 35% said no. I pointed out before that there was an assumption a wrong assumption on my part that this would actually break down completely among racial lines. Not so. Some of our brothers and sisters that said no were, you know, ethnic. So I thought that was interesting. As we continue on, you know, I want to talk just a bit more about what I opened the show with last time. I talked about a personal experience of uh, some friends and colleagues of mine as we sat out front of an establishment and we talked about gentrification and it devolved into you know, kind of a challenging conversation. It turned somewhat adversarial. And so as I was unpacking that last show, uh, one of the participants in that conversation posted his feeling about it. I didn't reveal any names because I didn't know if anyone would want uh, their names revealed. But one of those participants in that conversation was Brian Slaywin. I want to read what Brian Slaywin put on social media about that conversation. On March 17th, he posted, my friend Marcus S. Atkinson, as you know, because we've discussed it multiple times, the conversation, quote unquote, you referenced at the start of today's Next with Marcus Atkinson, was the most important, impactful, and upsetting discussion amongst friends that I've ever had. I was quite literally mad, confused, and conflicted for weeks about what it revealed about my historical thinking, my actions, and the path ahead for our entire community. It spurred me and frankly, all of us, to impassioned action and a greater insight that being quote-unquote white and woke just simply isn't enough. The brave space you're creating to explore racial, socioeconomic power structures and how we come together to make positive changes in our beautiful and diverse community is critically important. Love the thoughts and discussion in part one. We need more of this, and I can't wait for part two and more. So, Brian, thank you for that take. This is part two, and hopefully you'll enjoy this show as much as you did the last. So the goal of this show was to bring voices from the community that have uh, kind of have a track record of bringing their voices to the table when it comes to these issues. Uh, people that step out in community are very unique, and these are people that I personally admire because in every community, there's always water cooler talk. There's always this debate and discussion at, at people's dinner tables. Very few people have the passion for community, the chutzpah, if you will, to step out and make those opinions and those thoughts known publicly. Very few people take the extra step of wanting to do something about it publicly. So I wanted to bring people to the table today that I've witnessed personally uh, get involved, stay involved, lend their voices, um, sometimes popular, sometimes not so much, but all having the courage to stand on their convictions. And so with that being said, I want to welcome my guest today. Uh, first of all, I want to I welcome Molly Brechtel. Brechtel, am I saying that correctly? Correct. Molly, welcome to the show. I want to welcome Abdullah Washington. Abdullah, welcome to the show. All right. Thank you. And John Whaley. John, welcome to the show. Good morning. So, Molly, I want to start with you, and I just give kind of a, a little brief background here. We have that you're a healthcare advocate, but um, give us a more accurate depiction of who you are and uh, some of your background where community is concerned. 
I've lived in Erie for 18 years. Originally traveled here to go to Gannon. I've graduated and fell in love with the city. In those 18 years, I've been a community advocate. I've lived on the Lower East Side for the past 10 years. Um, currently, it's a neighborhood that's being gentrified by Erie Insurance. I have neighbors that have been displaced. Um, I'm a union organizer, so I know the fight for higher wages and good jobs in the city. And I'm, I'm here to speak for my neighborhood, mm. my neighbors. Okay. Abdullah Washington, talk to us a little bit about your background and activity. Well, um, I have family in Erie, so when I decided uh, to go back to school, I chose to come back here after about 10 years working as a general manager with a Fortune 500 company. And, um, you know, this is my hometown. I've been here for almost seven years now um, as a as an activist and a, a business person in my background it's only natural for me to want to contribute to the growth and development of this city and um you know my, my family is very active in this area in, in erie and so there's no way i can turn away from these issues and I, I'm, I'm happy to contribute in any way that i can um, i still produce art i did the film 1000 i think we, we talked about that here that was broadcast on this station and it's really a piece about community i like to think that everything that i do I can contribute something to the conversation here. I'm very passionate about what goes on in Erie because I can I see the potential here. Um, I went to elementary school around here with these very same people um, that we are discussing. Uh, as much as Erie is a small town, uh, it also is a city, right? So there's a lot of potential here, and I'm just glad to contribute in any way I can. Got it. John Whaley. John, you actually ran for mayor once upon a time. We had you in here with all of the candidates at that time. It's a very large pool. Yeah. of people wanting to lead our kind city. John, talk a little bit about your background and community. I know you're a guy who doesn't hold back on his take and um, challenges the system in some positive ways. Well, I'm not from Erie originally. I moved here in 1985 to uh, work for a restaurant chain. Left, came back, left again for a job somewhere else, came back, and I've been here now 17 or 18 years. And it's my de facto hometown. And I would like to see it blossom. I would like to see it grow. I have three children, two in college, one about to be in college, and I look at it from the lens of, is there opportunity for them? That's selfish. Should there be opportunity for everybody, but in my little family, what can, can they work here? Can they stay here? Can they open a business here? And uh, yeah, I'm a little jaded. You know, when, In 85 to now, Erie's much smaller. I watched Mill Creek blossom. We've seen Summit explode. Uh, we're seeing Fairview grow in uh, Erie, shrinking, shrinking, shrinking. So, um, like to see it grow. Like to see something new. All right. So let's go to the general question of: Do you fear gentrification here in Erie? We go back to that survey. So obviously, overwhelmingly, although not a large number surveyed, 65% of the people that were surveyed said yes, they have fear of that. We'll start with you two over here. Give us an idea of why you feel that some fear this trend coming to Erie? I think the fear is, is very real, and, and the fact of the matter is people have already lived it. Let's talk about Fifth Street between Parade and German. That whole block was torn down by Erie Insurance. Families were displaced. I know of someone that the affordable housing was torn down, and she slept on her grandmother's couch for a year and a half, um, just looking for housing for her and her son. And I drive by that block. That block used to have children playing. It used to have a lot of activity. And that block's now empty, um, except for apartments that Erie Insurance built that are now basically sitting empty. That whole neighborhood is gone, that whole block. Abdul, what are your thoughts? Well, I mean, I think the most striking thing about moving back to Erie is seeing how much things have changed. Uh, it, to, to John Whaley's credit, the shrinking uh, is a concern. But to me, the thing that, that most grabs my attention is the amount of the sheer amount of disinvestment that the communities, uh, the minority communities in the area, particularly the black communities, have experienced. Um, we're in a situation now where there's out of basically 900 teachers, uh, only nine of them are African American in a school system that's basically the students are 50% black. Uh, that's very troubling because you're talking about every form of, of disinvestment you can imagine. I was telling somebody the other day um, who's heavily involved in the community, I said that the issue with not having any black teachers here is that 
you have less of a base of, of active paid intellectuals in their families interacting in the community. When you see any of these social interactions, you know, if something affects a kid, you know, if they were, if they were a proportionate amount of black teachers, you would be touching on that community as well. And so you're talking about every form of disinvestment. So there's, there's no reason I myself have experienced um, racial profiling by the police in this area since I've been back here. And there really is a sense that there is no outlet, mm -hmm. uh, there is no access for the community here. And, and that creates the tone for these types of concerns among the population. It certainly affects how many people will actually turn out and vote, mm -hmm. unfortunately. Mm -hmm. So tie that into this gentrification conversation, because I get the sense that you are bringing in, I know the last show we discussed redlining to a great extent, right, and it right. showed the areas that you know, were intentionally disinvested in at that time. And, and by no coincidence, I don't believe so many of those areas are still impoverished right now. Obviously, that affects the school district, the resources of the school district. Oh, sure. It sounds like you're tying those issues in a little bit with your commentary. Am I absolutely. Correct? Absolutely. I mean, that that is the issue. If, if we don't feel that our concerns are being met, I mean, you have the previous mayor and it's been suggested that under this uh, under this administration, that uh, the mayor's office has allocated funds for the community and in within the same business cycle reallocated them to other areas, which is unfortunate. I mean, there has to be a compact between leadership and the communities that mm -hmm. leadership represents. Okay. I'm going to swing back to you just a second. Let me bring John into this conversation. So to that survey, 65%, yes, we fear it. 35%, no, we don't fear it. Address the 35%. So those people said, and I don't necessarily think that's an issue. Speak to that. Yeah, I was one of the, those mm -hmm. folks, and, and I don't fear it. Um, I think for a long time I've considered myself pragmatic, and one of the things I, I live by, and I love the, the aphorism, um, good of the many outweighs the good of the few. Um, in a family setting, in a business setting, in a church setting, whatever. And so I understand that some families have been displaced on Fifth Street for apartment buildings might be gone. But I think if we look at the whole of the city and the whole of the downtown, um, is it cleaner? Is it more attractive to more people? Um, Erie Insurance is a growing concern. I, th I think we want them to continue to grow. So you know, I could reference Brian Slavin, and I know Brian, and maybe his quote affects me a little bit. I'm looking at this from a different lens. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm not affected. I'm not displaced. Um, but overall, the change... Uh, the lurching forward, uh, there is going to be some pain. But if um, if some folks need to move or be moved, um, hopefully there's another place for them. But I think the overall community gets better. Mm -hmm. And I, it, at the granular level, is it painful? Sure. Anywhere you look around, the, the change has happened. But I think Erie needs some of this change to get better and come into the 21st century. Mm -hmm. Molly, speak to that. He addressed an issue that you brought up about Fifth Street and mm -hmm. EIE. Speak to his commentary on that, please. I think what's most concerning and alarming about this conversation is people making decisions for neighborhoods and, and groups of people and not including their voices, mm -hmm. their lives, the impact. Um, and ultimately, what we have to deal with is the fallout from those decisions. Um, you cannot pass down change to a group of people that's not a part of that conversation. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, we see that happening so many places in our city. Mm -hmm. So let me say, we had one of the representatives from EDDC on the show last time. Mm -hmm. We also had Brett Wilder here from Opportunity Zone. So if you look at, be it City Hall with the many methodologies that they have of trying to engage people in the community. Um, you have EDDC is developing, you know, somewhat of a, of a community voice type mechanism in order to hear people from the community, different organizations. Do you think in this, in this juncture right now, in this, this span of time, do you think there are, there's an effort to hear the voices of everyday people? I think you make a valid point of wanting to hear the residents. Do you think that's going on right now in your opinions? Absolutely not. Do we have a community member on any of the boards that are making decisions for us? Mm. No. Mm -hmm. Abdullah, what are your thoughts? I, mean, I think there's an overall trend across the country with the increase of, of regulations and whatnot uh, being, there, I mean, there certainly is an agenda to enhance corporate power. The problem with Erie 
is that we're a blue collar town, right? So the economy has been changing and whatnot. And we're really politically behind probably like 20 years. There's a lot of demographic issues with respect to the, the age of people who are in leadership here. So we're trying to create a lot of change really fast. And we just don't have the resources to make the types of decisions in the way that they need to be made. And it's, it's, we're just playing a lot of catch up on all fronts. So I do see some efforts being made. I mean, certainly the mayor uh, put some people in his staff in very public positions, uh, such as Michael Outlaw, and, um, you know, to send a message. But we're so behind, <laughs> we're so far behind in the city. My concern is how do we, we're getting a lot of investment now into the city for various things. Mm -hmm. And how do we bring still more people to the table to make decisions? I mean, to your credit, John Whaley, yeah, there's going to be some painful decisions that need to be made. But how do we get everybody to the table to make the real changes i mean everybody if i think i'm going to make a profit of a couple dollars and i think i need to make that profit that's a short-term objective we need to look further we need to look generationally where do we want to be with our children who are going to replace us you know it to some degree 20 years from now and things like that are are those decisions by these institutions that exist now are they being made with that uh perspective mm -hmm. you know the real long-term health of the city that's what I'm concerned about. Mm -hmm. So these short selling, the citizens who actually lived here, who've gotten the short end of the stick for a long time, they're going to play out differently. I mean, the growth in this city is coming out from people who are refugees, you know, from that, that, you know, immigrants here and people of color. So we can keep short shifting people, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. who are going to be the hardcore residents and the city will continue to get more poor. Mm -hmm. If we don't turn this into a situation where we're investing more in, in increasing the access and power of people who traditionally have been left out of these conversations, what we're going to run into is a situation where the people who are making the decisions now become less informed and less effective to deal with these changes that are coming across America. Mm -hmm. Let me throw that back across. So, John, do you first let's address the question. In your opinion, are you seeing a call for everyday voices to be included in this conversation, not just about, you know, um, the the health and vitality of the neighborhoods, economic development, do you feel like voices are being included? And then you can respond to some of what Abdullah says. Oh, I don't think they're, I think they're being included. Um, I don't think they're being heard or listened to. Mm. Uh, I'll be honest, I mean, I'm, I've gone to meetings and I know for a fact I've been just lip service. Wow. You get up and you talk and the people nod their heads and th th some decisions have been made. So uh, I will not pick on any single group, but. Do I think there are groups in town that are holding meetings and uh, holding up slideshows and putting up pretty pictures? Absolutely. And they're nodding their heads. Right. And there's some decisions that have been made and are going to be made. So um, no, I don't think everybody's being heard. Uh, there was a comment on Facebook, I remember, from about a year ago. And someone had complained about this uh, large group, EDDC. And they said, where's our seat at the table? And I said, your seat at the table is $2.5 million. You know, pitch in, become part of the group, become part of this investment program, and you'll get a voice. But so, uh, and I know that's very mercenary, but they're not there to make everybody happy and to, um, they're there to earn a profit. This, this group is gonna get money, get investment, buy buildings, change buildings, rent them out. The people that gave them money deserve uh, to get their money back and then they reinvest and do other things. And we're using Cincinnati and over the Rhine as, a, as an example. Mm -hmm. So a lot of money was invested, and no, not everybody got hurt. Um, so, but if I could just throw a comment, I wanna go back, before I moved to Erie, in the early 80s, Erie Insurance gentrified Sixth and French, took over blocks, tore down derelict buildings, tore down bars, tore down old tire shops. Had they not done that, I don't think Erie would be in any way as well off as it is. And I don't think Erie's well off. Erie, the city. Mm -hmm. So Erie Insurance came in and did some stuff that people didn't like back then. Thank God they did. They're doing stuff now that people don't like. And I think in 20 years, we're going to be like, wow, I'm glad they did that. Um, gentrification can be all kinds of things. I don't know if you guys remember the Busy Bee. It was a bar at Fifth and State. And if you're listening and you own that bar, I apologize, but what a horrible bar. Mm -hmm. the, the outside was ugly, the inside was ugly, the, the people outside were doing bad things. It was a terrible place at Fifth and State. Well, somebody bought that building, local guy bought it, remodeled, 
gentrified, got rid of this bar that people liked and put a Starbucks in and put some mm -hmm. law offices in. It has made the fabric of downtown, I think, so much better. Mm -hmm. I'd argue that you can go to Starbucks and go to the bathroom for free. You can go in and get a water. You, people go in and warm up all the time. You couldn't do that at the Busy Bee. So little tiny examples, maybe not the best ones, but that was gentrification that changed. Mm. An investment came in, um, made Erie better. Let's look at both sides of that because you make good points. You make good points. So you, you brought up Erie Insurance. John brings up a point. It, this is Erie's only homegrown Fortune 500 company. And so hearing this conversation from many, many different people, you know, two things kind of bubbled up to the surface for me. One, from an African-American gentleman, I was trying to get him on the show. Why does gentrification have to be a bad thing, he's saying? You know, he grew up in the hood, as he said, I want to see the hood improve. And so why is that a bad thing? We unpacked that at the time. The other thing is you want jobs, you want development. I think if Erie Insurance ran to another city, it would cause a different kind of outcry. Where's the middle ground? Because I think on one hand, from an economic development standpoint, many of us, want to see not just Erie Insurance, but other companies of that stature expand. And so what's the middle ground there in terms of where you go to expand? Should they not you know, buy up a, a city block in order to expand that to provide more jobs? Where's the line at in your opinions? Well, to me, again, it's just all an issue about investment. And, and so, you know, some things you invest in, they don't turn around a profit for you in the next business cycle. And that is the trend that we need to fight because of the issues like redlining and, and, and uh, literal racial segregation and, and, and whatnot. You have a situation where I did a show. Uh, so obviously, um, you know that I've, I've participated in the first round of TED, TEDx Erie. Uh, mm -hmm. and I was one of the speakers there and I got to meet up with a friend of a friend of mine. Uh, Simon Tam, uh, who's the, a member of a group called The Slants, and they had a successful Supreme Court case that ruled in their favor about the issues of racially insensitive uh, terms with respect to the Asian uh, American community, specifically. And of course, it's a it's a global issue. It's a global uh, law legal issue with respect to uh, copywriting and patents and whatnot. But so one of the things he focuses on in his in his activism is is uh, issues of cultural sensitivity and racism and whatnot. So it was remarkable. We brought them back to do a show in Erie. And, you know, I'd been talking to him about the issues in, in Erie here and whatnot. And after we were done with the show, I was in the car with one of my producers and another young man who's, uh, who's, who uh, is an artist that works out of here. And uh, we were pulled over by the police on 14th and State. And literally, the officer asked me for my identification. And then the second officer, well, there were four officers. And one of them came around the other side and asked for the other two gentlemen's identification, which everyone knows is, you know, you don't do that. Mm -hmm. But the idea that three black men can't be in a car, we're all, you know, we're, <laughs> I'm not going to, I don't have, I don't roll, I don't roll with certain types of people. Let's put it that way. You know, I'm not setting myself up for failure. So I knew that there was no outstanding issues. But the perception by people in the police force in the area that you see a car full of uh, three black men and it's Christmas. Yeah, I mean, I had to take all those gentlemen home. We had mm -hmm. a long conversation about it. But this is downtown. And if the perception is that downtown, that black people can't travel freely downtown. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but I, I want to bring you back to this point, though, because I think that what Molly brought up, what John brought up, I think that's a legitimate issue. And so let's go back to the notion of a company, Erie Insurance just happened to be the company that we're discussing, a company expanding for the sake of economic development so that more people can have jobs. Where's the line you draw on that? Because yes, they bought up property in order to expand and create more jobs. What's your preference? Where's the line on that? Molly, give me your take. The line is community benefit agreements. Mm -hmm. we, we have too much talk about investing in buildings and investing in property and investing in businesses and not enough conversation about investing in people. Mm -hmm. um, the line is drawn, people have conversations, people have investments through agreements that benefit them. Um, not only that, but we're talking about Erie being a tourism economy mm -hmm. and what do we see happening a lot of these touristy establishments are receiving tax breaks turning around paying seven eight nine dollars an hour have employees on public assistance mm -hmm. so here you have some of these job creators 
also drawing from the system in, in benefits because their, their wages aren't living wages. Mm -hmm. The line is community benefits agreements. Mm -hmm. And so to be, to be fair, many would say that air insurance is a good steward of community by way of the multiple investments they make in community groups, organizations, events. Would you agree or disagree with that? Yeah. And I, then we'll move on from EIE. I just want to make sure that we handle this holistically since they were brought right. up. Yeah. Well, I mean, again, my whole point is they are doing those types of things. My question with them is the scale and, and the, the level. I mean, we have to bring everybody to the table. That's my whole point. If the less leadership roles that people who are perceived as being part of the community uh, have in this whole process, the less engagement with the community, the less that people who have resources mm -hmm. will, uh, will value uh, uh, the people who are in the community. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's the concern is how, you know, if I want to make an investment and I need to make it at this scale, but I don't believe that it's going to create the type of change that is necessary for the city, I might draw back from that. Mm -hmm. You know, I might not believe that those people can improve, will, are committed to improving their lives. And that's, I, that's why I'm, I'm, I'm focusing on the idea of, of representation and that, that part of it. I think that they could probably do better. Uh, but that's that's for everybody to be able to have a conversation about. Mm -hmm. And uh, even to John Whaley's uh, credit there, uh, that doesn't seem to be happening on a certain level. I do respect the fact that they see that there has to be something. I mean, obviously, they see their need to be investing uh, in, a, in, a, in a holistic way in some respect in the city of Erie. Uh, but I do think that there's more room for community involvement and mm -hmm. that needs to be addressed across the board with all these entities. Let me bring this back over to John. So... You know, when we introduced the redlining map for a reason, and, you know, one of the, the arguments that you hear so often, and even when people can't necessarily articulate it, you know, that it's obviously no coincidence that these redlining maps in the areas that were deemed desirable are also areas that still struggle decades sure. later. There's a sense among common people in these neighborhoods, everyday people, that the system, if you will, has chosen the losers and now it's going back to those same areas and trying to choose the winners. And that just leaves a bad taste in people's mouths. Sure. When you look at redlining and its effects, even to this very day, is that a pattern that, that, that you see? What's your take on some of these areas that have been redlined and the results that have come from it? Well, I think the lack of investment that people are able to get if they can't get a loan to fix up a house, if they can't buy a home and instead rent their whole lives, uh, terrible for the community. Um, I, I guess in gentrification, and I, I have this rosy view of Brooklyn. I almost moved to New York a long time ago, and Brooklyn was so bad, and no one wanted to live there. And it, it, it's not entirely true, but a lot of times your artists find a cheap place to have a loft, and it, it begets more and more and more. And um, I, I just think there's a natural cycle, and, and if you look at Lower East Side, it might be the oldest part of the town, so homes are 100-plus years old there, never been fixed up. In very generalizations I'm using here, right? There's been a lack of investment for decades and decades and decades. So it makes sense for some outsiders who might have money to come in and buy a house for $8,000 and be able to rent it to two people for 400 bucks a month each. That makes sense. Um, it does provide housing for people, but if they choose to tear that down, tear three of them down and put up an apartment, you know, again, I'm, I'm going to say I got a different lens. I think that's good for the mm -hmm. community. When I look at Sixth and Parade right now, and I think the armory and the green space, and there's a park across the street, that's better for a lot of people who live at Sixth and Parade right, and some right. children who, who have never had an area to play. Yeah. So overall, I'm, see, I'm only seeing good. Um, you know, do we need to maybe spur some more? Maybe there needs to board. The Lurda, I think, is going to help. Mm -hmm. So I'm way on the, the opposite side of this argument, I think, um, because I just don't get down to the granular level. I will use an example that I think is going to come up. Okay. Um, and I just blanked on the name. The hotel at Fifth and State. Used to be a hotel. Now it is senior City living. Hotel. Right, right. And, and, oh, you Fifth know, and State, Richard Arms. Richard Arms. Do I see that in 10 years as still being what it is today? No. Do I think that uh, 80 apartments in there with people that work at Erie Insurance um, could provide an economic boost to downtown? Yes. So do I think Erie Insurance or EDDC or someone could and should buy that? Yes. Is there a way 
to also make an investment. So somebody builds another senior living or low income tower somewhere that might even be better, right? If you live downtown and you, and you need to get places, you depend on the bus. There's not a grocery store downtown. I love Oasis Market, but it's not a real grocery store. So these people that live there have limited access. It, instead of saying, oh, they're all gonna be kicked out and it's gonna be worse, theoretically, if everybody gets a voice at the table and um, the mayor and EDDC and Erie Insurance and investor, they, they could get in a room and talk, maybe there's a better place to build this. Maybe the, um, uh, the county home on the east side that's empty now. Mm -hmm. Could that be refurbished, rehabbed, 150 people moved out there, it's green space. It, it doesn't have to be bad saying that maybe this is gonna turn into luxury apartments and a nice mm -hmm. restaurant. But that would spur more people to move downtown, for more people to open a boutique. I just think it would all, all right. be better. Yeah. Well, let's speak to that. He unpacked a lot in that. Yeah. <laughs> There's a lot in there. Yeah. I'm not trying to put you on the spot. I just want to make sure we keep you in this conversation. I'm just thinking what, where my mind is going right now is we can build new shops and new businesses and new restaurants in downtown, but workers in the city do not have wages that permit them to go there. You know, going back to the whole tourism economy, there's tons of things to do with your family in this city, tons of things. Right. Few workers can actually afford it. Um, you know, there is a woman in, in Erie recently that um, we met, and she's in her 70s, working multiple jobs. And she's one of the ones that's been left behind. Her kids have all moved away that they had the resources. And here she is and, you know, working several jobs in her, her late 70s. And, and she made this statement, I'm going to work until I die and the city's going to kill me. Where is her voice? Mm. Who's advocating for her? Is she able to go to one of these boutiques or one of these restaurants or have some fun? Mm -hmm. <laughs> on the wages that she's working. She's just working so much she can't even enjoy life. Mm -hmm. So I hear you very much in creating these opportunities and creating, but fundamentally going back to for who? Mm -hmm. Abdul. Right, so I mean, as we, we were discussing this before, I mean, people don't think about this, but you know, lower wage income earners spend a much higher percentage of their income, you know? And so this idea that somehow you're going to provide all these incentives to people who have a bunch of money mm -hmm. and a bunch of capital by itself is going to save something. It can't. And that's one of the reasons why I believe, again, this is more in investing in the people who actually live there. If you have people who have the type of money where they suddenly can spend more money, you're going to keep more of that money in the city itself, at least, you know, in the, in, in, in the county, uh, but certainly in the city itself. Mm -hmm. There's other things that we can do, uh, like even – we were talking about this earlier, um, John, and uh, even if the mayor just started to, you know, make it so that, that new public officials coming in had, had, were incentivized to live in the city, those types of things, those are investments in Erie, in our actual communities of people who are actually living here right now. And again, it, it, my concern, we do need everyone to grow here. Mm -hmm. We need the, mayor, the mayor's office to, to, to work uh, more directly with small businesses so that they aren't uh, disincentivized from from operating in here there's a number of things and that's one of the reasons why uh, I'm, i got involved in the viaduct issue is that this is one of the issues foremost on my mind is how do we encourage everyone to see the people who actually live in the city in our communities in erie as valuable resources to invest in mm. and instead of just cannibalizing everything you know that the people who live here actually need let me glean a couple of those points and tie it to something that john just said john used the term outsiders when he talked about uh developing something potentially in a, a given neighborhood you talked about the um you know some of the resources of the neighborhood you also talked about the spending habits right. of people who don't have per se two things one it was a post that I put on social media that I thought from a young African-American gentleman that I thought was interesting. He said the people and I'm paraphrasing, he said the people always say that there's no money in the hood. So why are all of these different ethnicities building their businesses in the hood? Absolutely. And those businesses are succeeding. He said we aren't poor. We have poor spending habits. I thought that was profound. Absolutely. The second thing, looking at an article on CityLab.com, you know, a new city church battles against gentrification, looking at this this. Um, 
you know, very petite pastor, Reverend Tyler Sitton, he's a half Asian, half white gentleman in uh, New City Church in Minneapolis. And this article really unpacks the fact that his church is going after um, purchasing property, owning the land, um, sure. and helping people in that neighborhood acquire these homes pay them off, get their credit together, things along those lines. And then you go locally and you look at some of the work of someone like Bishop Brock. Certainly. I say all of that to ask this, I'm sorry. When it comes to buying property, developing these neighborhoods, what's the issue with people that are ethnic, that have the best intentions for people in these neighborhoods? Why not have them, why can't they develop the neighborhoods? That argument I've heard time and time again, across the country, it's the same pattern. Neighborhood falls apart, certain demographic comes in, develops it. You've got ethnic people in all of these cities with money sure. that are from these neighborhoods. Why are they investing in these neighborhoods and beating the system, quote unquote, to the punch? Well, I mean, I do think there are a number of reasons and they, we can't get on all these now, but I'm glad you brought that up. Um, so because of, so you have larger systems that tell an overarching story. You turn on the TV every day, you can see any number of negative stories, particularly about African Americans, because as a culture, that's what we focus on, you know, unfortunately. It comes with large industrial development. The, the, the prison industry in America is, is one of the fastest growing institutions to this day. So there are larger economic narratives that drive a lot of people's thinking and a lot of perceptions. If you just constantly see, even though if you look at the composition of the prison population, without looking any deeper, if you believe that half of the people in prison are African Americans, that's going to tell you, <laughs> that's going to tell you statistically at least that half of the crimes being committed are mm -hmm. being committed by white men. But no one's like afraid of them, mm. right? I mean, there's a narrative there. So I think the narrative works against where we need to go as a nation. And we need to seize that. And we need to work together and see that there's opportunity there. Mm. Until we believe that there's opportunity there, until we believe that know that these people aren't worth investing in, mm -hmm. these types of things won't happen. But yes, it should be community driven. We need to, we need to have conversations mm -hmm. about how to be able to work together from individuals who are leaders in the community, actively charged with roles such as ministers and whatnot, mm -hmm. and people who are business leaders and local politicians, as well as even getting the kids involved, mm -hmm. which is one of the reasons why I'm glad to see that these programs developing relationships have been initiated, uh, apparently through the mayor's office, with respect to job trainings mm -hmm. and whatnot, dealing with the police and, 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 and uh, uh, the firemen and whatnot. Those are really good initiatives, but unless we, uh, until we approach this from the perspective that people in the communities who where leaders have value and bring value, and we create these large institutional pushes, such as uh, getting more black teachers involved in the, mm -hmm. in, the, in the educational system and whatnot, until those types of maneuvers happen, we're telling this story that there's no value in the black community. Okay, so let me ask this, and then I'll bring Molly back into this conversation. So to kind of go with some of what you're saying, I'm trying to tie in a lot of points that I think, um, that I've heard myself that I, I think have some value. And so you take the prison industrial complex, you take the issue with not enough ethnic teachers in a school district that is majority ethnic. Um, you take a neighborhood that is dilapidated or blighted and you take investors that are new American, African American, right, right. you know, of, from various disenfranchised communities. It, it strikes me as an opportunity and, and many as an opportunity to, to say, you know what, the neighborhoods that children who look like me go to the schools around those neighborhoods are full of children that are ethnic, right. that are at risk. Right. At the present time, nobody wants these neighborhoods. That's right. Why wouldn't we seize this as an opportunity? Right. We being the, you know, the, 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 the groups that are at risk, why wouldn't they seize that as an opportunity to say, we will go in and start to stabilize the neighborhood and start to try to repopulate the neighborhood with working class everyday folk our new American brothers and sisters are extremely hardworking and are buying houses left and right. Why not try to change the trajectory of the neighborhood yourselves? Molly, speak to that. So I think, first of all, that's, that's not what we're seeing in the city. Mm -hmm. um, second of all, what a beautiful vision. Um, and I think that's what basically what we're pushing for is getting people around the table, making choices for themselves investing in each other. Nice. Unfortunately, what we have is a society that's based on division, that's based on structural racism, that's 
based on, you know, few people holding wealth. Um, so as beautiful as that vision is, that isn't something that we currently see. Um, and I would say would be looking at a lot of the um, challenges that Erie has in regards to race, um, that would be a huge challenge mm -hmm. for us currently. Okay, I have a counterpoint. There's, a, and I don't want to call out names, but there's a development, a second phase of a development on Parade Street mm -hmm. in Erie, 19th and Parade. The portion was done maybe 10 years ago, and now there's a new portion being done. The average cost per unit is $300,000 that's being spent through loans, grants, um, all sorts of money per unit of this apartment complex. I would argue, I might be wrong, but I would argue that none of the people that are going to live in those apartments are moving into the city for the first time. Points well taken. I think they're going to migrate from other areas of the city. And so in effect, we're building a development at 19th and Parade that is hurting the fabric of the very city that they think they're helping. So how, and part of it's structural and how grants are administered and how loans are administered and could this pool of money have been developed and then spent on hundreds of single family homes, 5th Street, 6th Street, 3rd Street, let's not ignore the west side, okay? Mm -hmm. And instead of 47 people living in a brand spanking new apartment, maybe 400 people could have had really nice housing. It happened a couple years ago, I'll say it, Hands, which is a really great community organization. They built Freedom Square. 27 apartments cost $9 million. Combination of federal money, state money, et cetera. Again, we're $300,000 per unit up on 24th and Peach. Couldn't we have purchased homes, rehabbed them, and sold them to these vets for a dollar? Now a vet, because it's all about veterans in that veteran square. Now you'd have 100 or more homes owned by veterans that have equity, that are homeowners, that are on the tax rolls. I, I think that we have organizations doing things that are hurting the city and not helping. Mm -hmm. And so to, to who, who puts their arms around this? Who says, okay, hands, EDDC, city, county, state, Let's all get in a room. What are you doing this year? What are you doing next year? Where are you at five years from now? Let's make sure we're spending this money correctly. And I've looked at grants, and we've some people at this table have looked at grants or applied for grants, mm -hmm. and they're crazy. You know, you can get a grant to rehab an old building, but you can't get a grant to build a new building or whatever. So maybe some things at the state level could be changed. But if Hans was able to spend $9 million on 27 apartments, mm -hmm. we could have impacted this city far more with a hundred homes and, and putting people in those. So th there's, there's gentrification happening and we don't even see it. It's these little tiny nodes that are happening and I think both those examples hurt the city. They left empty buildings now at second and read because those people got a chance to move up to 19th, which is nice, but what happened to second and read? Well, I mean, I think it's difficult to gauge the success or, or the targeting of a lot of these initiatives because the state and local and federal governments, they're all so heavily invested in at least directly investing or incentivizing development. So it's kind of hard sometimes, other than looking at raw population growth in the city, to really measure the success or impact of, of, of initiatives. Uh, so, I mean, obviously something needs to be done, and it's great when things, when things do happen. Mm -hmm. um, but one of, the, one of the biggest issues is the, the fact of just the, the balance of power and and that's one of the reasons why I just focus on bringing people together to the table to make these decisions. Because at the end of the day, when you get down to the actual dollars involved, <laughs> there's any number of ways you can look at how investments benefit the city. But when we're just talking about raw population, I discussed it with somebody else the other. The incentives the mayor has to have Erie be a city over the the population of a hundred thousand uh, financially uh, are are pretty big, right? So. Um, I do think it's incumbent upon the mayor to be a leader in this process. And um, one of the reasons why we need transparency is to be able to gauge what is most effective, you know, as, as you mentioned. 
Um, because there's any number of dollar ways that you can look at something and see what worked and, and, and what didn't work. I think the fact, as, as you said, uh, Marcus, is that um, all of these are happening, all these developments are happening in different ways. It's important. But until we actually come together, as I mentioned before, and share information, mm -hmm. we're not really going to see the, 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 the actual uh, how effective the investment actually is, mm -hmm. other than gauging the actual just population. So one of my metrics for it is the amount of participation from different people, which is one of the reasons why I first started talking about this issue with the hundred, you know, with the lack of black teachers in the system and whatnot. These are things that you can see mm -hmm. and they have the effect uh, because a person, you can't necessarily put a dollar value on a person's life, how many people they interact with and whatnot. Um, so that's something that I can look at and hold and see, well, you know what, this person's going to have a positive impact because the more black people in supervisory positions in this county, the more people of color in general in this county, uh, the more the issue of having people, I mean, there's a lot of people who have, who have never had somebody of color tell them something that they had to do in their lives. Mm -hmm. And that's a big issue in Erie. Mm -hmm. As much as poverty that we have here, that's something we'll never really be able to, to erase. And that has something that directly affects how much respect we show for each other, which translates into how these institutions make their decisions. Let me swing this back over to Molly. Molly, I noticed when John was talking, shaking your head at a lot of what he was saying. I, I take it that there were some points there that kind of resonated with you. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, you know, talking about what makes sense for the neighborhood mm -hmm. and the people that live in it. And I very much identified with the example that you used with 19th Street. Um, that's what we need more of is conversations. I remember years ago on, on 22nd Street, I went to this meeting that was talking about the neighborhood. And a couple of things, I, I actually ended up walking out of the meeting <laughs> because we had turned out our neighbors and we had gone there and very few of our neighbors were there. And there's a lot of people from outside of our neighborhood. And they were talking about condos and ethnic food markets and green space and all of these things that if you had talked to the neighborhood and the people that live there, those weren't our priorities. Mm -hmm. um, and I actually walked out of the, the meeting because I didn't feel represented. Mm -hmm. I didn't feel that my voice mattered. And I didn't feel that even if I had spoken up, the plan was already made. Mm -hmm. They already envisioned the condos. They already wow. envisioned the ethnic food markets. They already envisioned um, a different way of, of looking at that neighborhood. And I couldn't identify with that, so I didn't participate. Mm. So I think it's not only creating the space to have those conversations, which you know you were referencing, and that's so important, but also respecting and valuing the opinions and voices of people in the room. So not only do we have to get them in the room together, right. we need to um, collaborate. Mm. Let me read some of the uh, posts from social media from the last show. Uh, we'll start with the post from Francis Bowers, who lives on the Lower West Side. Our West Bayfront area is, is uh, becoming more and more popular as, as every year passes. She says, we have such a beautiful view of the lake, so I see people wanting to move in the area. My neighborhood is right above the Bayfront Highway, and I've seen all the changes. Too bad some of the property owners have died or, too old or are too old to make repairs and lose their property for taxes and get bought up by people who can afford it. I'm still here after living in this area for 60 plus years. Let's see what they're going to do and see if it will include all of the people. Any reaction? We'll read a couple of these. Any reactions to that? No, that's that's gentrification. That's there, There's opportunity there. Um, and yeah, unfortunately, if the, if the folks don't have the resources to keep up their home, now, taxes, if you want to talk about taxes, you want to talk about making the city a better place to live, uh, let's get some lower taxes and let's get services for our taxes. So um, you want to drive some people out, you know, you can, you can go live in Mill Creek, you can live in Fairview much cheaper than you can live in Erie. Um, and I think that that's part of this conversation. Mm -hmm. um, why, why would there be disinvestment somewhere? Why would people move out? Why are there empty buildings? Well, 
you know, there are not great schools, taxes are high, you may not be getting great services, uh, but then that leaves this vacuum where someone can come in and scoop up a house for five grand mm -hmm. and do some Section 8 in there, and they're happy, somebody got a house, but it didn't make the city any better. Mm. I, I feel bad. So let's read a couple more posts, and we'll get some reaction over here. The first one is from, the next one is from Tom Weber. It says, the city is allowing competing interests to define the debate, and whoever has the most money gets to speak with the loudest voice. Nobody with any real power is looking out for the interests of longtime residents. Reaction? Absolutely agreed. Mm. Right, yeah, that, that's, that's definitely a concern, and it, it's not going to go away. But we have to see the potential in the people who live in the city of Erie as something to invest in. Honestly, we can invest a half a million dollars on new computers, but if we don't have teachers that the students can relate to, if we don't have teachers who are active role models in a daily basis of, of intellectual pursuit in, it, it, that can, they can tie directly into their communities, those kids are disincentivized. I mean, the medium is the message. If I only hear education from a, per, a certain appearance of person, and then I go out into the larger world, and those are all the authority figures, I'm not going to ever imagine myself being somebody who can have any authority. Okay. And, and that is shaping everything. And these people who are these large investors, they need to acknowledge that and change, change what he's describing there. I'll let John react to that. Not to, not to that, but to Tom's comment. If, mm -hmm. in, in a granular level, again, where I live, in Glenwood, there are rules in place you can and can't do certain things. And we have a pretty active board, and we're pretty active with our neighbors. And uh, recently, a, a new neighbor moved in and, and put a couch on their front porch. Well, in speaking to those folks and in speaking to our association, we got the couch taken off the front porch. It's, it's not right. So instead of someone speaking for everybody, instead of someone speaking for the neighbors, the neighbors need to speak to themselves. So. I'll pick one, I'll make up something, 7th and Reed. If you live at 7th and Reed and you don't like the garbage across the street, you can go pick it up. You can talk to the neighbor that's throwing it out and, and say, could you pick up your garbage? There's a number of ways to accomplish things that, that can make your neighborhood better. And I guess that's what I'm reading there with Tom. It's like we all are waiting around for some magic wand and somebody's gonna come in and save us. Mm. They're not gonna save us, we gotta save ourselves. And so if you wanna keep property values up, work with your neighbors point well taken I'll read the next one from Alice Edwards we won't comment on it because I get the sense that we've already addressed this I think multi-use urban spaces are healthiest I want to protect the people ie Richmond Arms for example I want us to have an open conversation about how to improve neighborhoods for the benefit of those already living there right. as well as encouraging new investment in the city sounds like she spoke to something that you've said Anthony Buffalari it's all a part of the re redevelopment process some neighborhoods have deteriorated and values have gone down so consequently, rents are lower in those areas. So consequently, I'm sorry, rents are lower in those areas. If an area is invested in and redeveloped or revitalized, whatever then those houses' neighborhoods value should go up and most likely rent should and will also. No one is going to invest time, money, effort into an area without a return enough to make it worth it. Similarly, some neighborhoods, house, some neighborhoods' houses, values, and rents are the worth, and how lower just, I'm not sure if this is coming out right, just simply because it's not as many people want to live in those areas. If you're listening on the radio, I'm reading as it's written. I'm sorry. If development or redevelopment causes increased values and rents, it's still worth it. It's really the only option. The only other option is blight and demolition. Reaction. This is not a zero-sum game. That's the problem. You look at things like that. I mean, there's no invisible ghost adjusting stuff. People make their decisions based on their political views and their, their, and their, their, pers their perspectives. And what we're battling here is the whole idea that black people magically after slavery have no value. That's, that's what we're fighting. And, and, and so a clear-minded person can see that. And it's not just us, the whole position, the socioeconomic position of minorities in this country. That's a fabrication. And to your credit, uh, so you mentioned, you know, people who are leaders in the community stepping forward and making these investments. Not and necessarily making these leaders, just well, people well, who have the wherewithal. But, but certainly, yeah. yeah, I mean, I, I don't mean to say that leader, yes. when you say leaders, it's a very loaded term. But like, mm -hmm. yeah, people, it'd be great to have people in the community take these types of steps. Mm -hmm. I think there are a lot of people who, once they see 
the possibility, and we're kind of given putting that vision out there now of coming together to their neighbors. And that's one of the reasons why I like living in my neighborhood, because my street on 7th Street, the portion that I live in, is still a neighborhood. I can go to other streets and see behaviors that I've seen in other big cities and know, okay, well, at least try to be less obvious with your activities, you know. <laughs> but this, the portion that I live in, I can go to my neighbor. They know the family. They know, you know. Uh, so it's, it is a big part of it. Is I mean, we're not just objects. We have dreams and whatnot, but a lot of people, they don't know any better, and they're, they're not that level of trust there. But one of the things about gentrification that people worry about is having their neighborhood dispersed. I mean, if I have kids in a system, uh, if I have kids in the school system, they need to go to school. The neighbor down the street from me might not be the best guy in the world, but if he knows me, he's not going to expose my children to certain things. Point well taken. Point well taken. Before I move on to the last point that we'll analyze to, you know, when I say just people who have the wherewithal, like right now, I know an, an, an ethnic real estate agent or real estate developer, I, I should say, who is actively trying to get ethnic people of various backgrounds right. to come together, pull their resources. And he's saying exactly what we're talking about. Hey, can we start buying up some of these homes and, and helping to uh, get everyday people? There's a lot of working class people. A lot of them are the working poor. Right. Unfortunately. Sure. Living in these neighborhoods. And so the thought process is out there. I'm anxious to see what comes from it. Let me read this last quote by Rebecca Stein. I have mixed feelings. She was on the show before, as a matter of fact. I have mixed feelings about this, uh, her speaking about the poll. So I'm not voting since there isn't a maybe option, whether or not there was or wasn't fear of gentrification. I understand the concern of gentrification, but if we cannot reverse the population trend, get investment in the city and downtown, then even gentrification becomes a moot point. I think that a, a, that a diverse voice in the future development of Erie may provide a better opportunity to improve the investment and overall growth of the region, while also keeping those concerns at the forefront. I'm still a firm believer of a rising tide lifts all boats, and as long as the community works collectively for the greater good. Any reactions to that quote before we head toward the finish line? Oh, I agree 100% with that quote. Um, if we look at 16501, it's been named as the poorest zip code in America. That's right. Something has to happen. So if it is gentrification, if it's a, a large employer, if it's a group of people, it, 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 it isn't going to make it any worse. This, it, it's, it's bad. And so, um, yeah, I'm still on that 35% of I'm all for it. Um, but we're in bad shape downtown. And that core, let's make that core healthy. But I do think rising tide lifts all boats. And if your insurance hires 600 people, some of those folks are going to be residents that might live in that area. Um, and and I, I guess the one thing, and we can talk about this after, sure. I would argue that of the residents in 16501, I'm going to assume demographically there are a lot of poor white folks in there. It's not, no one's saying, I don't think that it's just poor African-American or just poor this. Um, there's a lot of whites that are struggling in the system that, that are getting no help yeah. either. This is I, why I absolutely King agree. The poor people's campaign. Right. It's, it's, it's true to right. that. Right. But the, the whole perception that, oh, don't go into the city, you know, that's where bad things happen. Mm -hmm. You know, there are these people there. Those, we talk to ourselves all the time, but that perception is driving a lot of this disinvestment. Mm -hmm. And if we want to show leadership, we will change the whole way. Yeah, go ahead. I'm, I'm going to give Molly, I'm sorry, I'm sure, going to give Molly sure. the, the, the last closing comment. Molly? whether it's on the quote that I just read, something that you've heard, give us the last thought of the day. So I keep hearing the word investment, mm -hmm. investment, investment. And what's missing is it's time to invest in the people of Erie. Mm -hmm. And the best way that we can invest in our community is through living wage jobs. That way we can stop having this conversation about change being passed on. People can make decisions for themselves they can choose where to live. They can choose their leisure. We need investment in the community and specifically in the people that live there. Excellent closing thought. Well, this has been uh, Marcus Atkinson. Thank you for tuning in to Next on WQLN. Join us next month as we explore another timely topic with local guests. I want to thank our guests for coming on the show. Molly Brechtel, Abdullah Washington, John Whaley. Excellent conversation. Certainly we didn't expect to solve the, the world's problems or Erie's problems in one show. But we did want to advance the conversation, and I think we achieved that goal. For radio, tune in to 91.3 FM on the fourth Sunday of the month at 4 p.m. 
We will see you all next time. Thank you.